If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 43, continuing to read through the book of Genesis. We take up this morning chapter 43, verses 16 through 34, which is the end of the chapter. Lend your attention. This is God's word. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out. For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Then he washed his face, and he came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, as the Egyptians, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptian. And they sat before him. The firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You can turn in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 9. This is the third of three miracles in this second cycle. We said that this section of Matthew's gospel is made up of three sections of three miracles, although the third triad we'll see, there are actually four miracles, but it's three miracle episodes. But this is the last or the climax of this second triad. Jesus has stilled the winds and the waves. Jesus has commanded a legion of demons, and here he performs something even more wonderful. 
He forgives sin. Lend your attention, this is God's word. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blasphemy. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God had given such authority to men. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. How excellent is your word, O Lord. The eternal word, the beloved son who here appears before us as the one who forgives, as the one who brings forgiveness, as the one who has purchased forgiveness. pray, Father, that as we behold him, that we would understand our own hearts better. And then coming to a better understanding of our own hearts, we might come to a greater love for the great physician, the true forgiveness, the king, our God. Help us, O Lord, in these things. Many things stand against us from hearing the truth. But you can knock them all down. The highest wall cannot stand against your thundering voice. Be pleased, Lord, to knock down walls. Be pleased, O oh Lord, to prepare our hearts to receive your word, even now. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My parents did their best to teach me the difference between a need and a want. I'm sure you can think back to humorous episodes from your own childhood or perhaps raising your children and helping them to make this distinction. Mom, Dad, I need this new baseball bat. I, I need it. Son, I love you, but you're wrong. You don't need it. You want it. <laughs> Mom, Dad, I need this new video game. We've had this conversation. <laughs> you don't need it. You want it. In time, you've come to learn, okay, there's a difference between need and want. Then a new vista opens up. And as adults, we come to the realization that we don't even know what we need very well. We think we need this or that thing that seems so very important to us only to get it and find, oh, it didn't really matter all that much. It wasn't that necessary. It didn't possess the weight that I thought it possessed. It wasn't a need. It was just a want. And maybe a silly one at that. So even if you learn the lesson early, you find that you're continually learning it. Which are continually getting confused on this very point. Jesus weighs into this conversation and says, that's yeah, kind of tough to know the difference between a need and a want. We read this passage and we think, yeah, this guy has a real need. 
He's paralyzed. He needs to walk. He's miserable. He needs you to relieve his misery. That seems like a reasonable argument. Jesus says he does have a need. But it's not mobility. Wait, what? Like, that's a want? That's just a want? <laughs> he says he has a need. He needs forgiveness. He has a need that's more pressing, more basic, more foundational than his misery. He needs forgiveness for his sin. Beloved, it's not just his need, it's our need. Every single one of us, not once upon a time, but always, beloved, this basic need remains. We need forgiveness, and not just that, we need God's word to remind us of what we really need and how he has provided for that need in the Lord Jesus Christ. For unless we see the need rightly, we are ill-positioned to see the provision rightly. Can you see that? If we go about thinking that we need this or that thing which God has not said he's going to give us, then we're ever only going to be dissatisfied and frustrated with him. But if in the light of God's word we say, no, we need what you say we need, then we're positioned to receive what he freely gives, beloved, which is a gift better than life itself. It's peace with God. Peace with God. Peace with God, beloved. This Jesus Christ has come to bring, and that he gives freely. So consider with me this morning your need and his provision. First, sin is your biggest problem. Second, you object to that vehemently. And third, Jesus proves that that's what you need. First, sin is your biggest problem. Verses 1 and 2. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. It seems that the shock of this scene is twofold. The first is the obvious one, namely that Jesus, this man from this city, think about that. These are just small town folk. This man is from that town, and there he is saying, I have the authority to forgive sin. And make no mistake, he says that not on behalf of God, but with an authority that goes beyond that. He's not announcing forgiveness as the prophets announced it. He's granting forgiveness as a king grants it. That's the first shocking thing about this. The second shocking thing is a little bit subtler. It's less obvious, but I think it's just as powerful. And the second shocking thing is that even this paralyzed man, 
even the level of difficulty of this life, even the level of misery of this life, which is difficult to really comprehend, beloved, make no mistake, even at the heart of this life is the same basic need of forgiveness. His need is to have his sins forgiven. I think that's also part of the shock of this text, isn't it? This is a surprising exchange. Certainly this has a thrust of shock to it. Now, in a sense, we shouldn't be that surprised. Matthew's gospel has already prepared us for this. Chapter 1 of Matthew, he shall be called Jesus because he is here to save his people from their sins. This is why he's come. He didn't come to fix everyone's lot in life to the exact specifications that everyone has in mind. He came to deal with the heart of the matter, namely sin, separating creatures from their creator. That's what he came to deal with. So John's ministry began. Repent. Turn from sin. Okay, so sin is near the heart of the matter. Jesus picked up the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. To repent means to acknowledge sin and to forsake it, to renounce it, and to turn to the true and living God. John and Jesus didn't come to just call some people. He didn't come and say, hey, some of you have a sin problem. The rest of you have other problems. He said, all of you have this basic problem of sin. Rich and poor, religious elite and lowly peasant, healthy and sick, every conceivable configuration of life on this mortal coil has beating at its dark and dreadful heart the problem of sin. Matthew's prepared us for this. And so that all prepares us to see, okay, here's a particularly miserable lot in life. And yet we conclude... Or at least our instinct tells us, well, his problem's probably different. He probably has a more pressing problem than sin. The shock of this passage seems to be that this man's misery seems like a more basic need than sin. Doesn't it? He can't move, beloved. He has to be carried on a mat every... That would be difficult in 21st century affluent USA, let alone backwood Galilee first century, beloved. Part of the shock is that even in the face of this level of misery, Jesus says the real problem is sin and the real blessing is forgiveness. Take heart, child. Your sins are forgiven. I think that's difficult to get your mind around. I've had to deal with it all week, so admittedly you're at a disadvantage. <laughs> but try to get your mind around that. That in the face of this man's miserable lot in life, 
The real problem wasn't the circumstances. The real problem was sin. And thus Jesus grants him the greatest blessing conceivable in the face of that. So you tell me. I suspect you have problems in your life. I suspect you probably have a lot of problems in your life, big and small. Now, maybe you just feel them and you haven't thought them through. Or maybe you've thought about them a great deal and you feel like you have a pretty good grasp on what your basic problem is. How easy is it for you to acknowledge God's explanation of your basic problem? How quickly does your mind go to that? In the face of all of these, let's call them incidental issues. <laughs> How quickly does the light of God's word shed upon the reality of your life saying, no, no, beloved, it's not your circumstances. It's not your lot in life. It's sin. I think we're very good at deceiving ourselves when it comes to our real problem. We're like men on death row convinced that the lousy food is the real problem. We're like someone with an unrepayable debt, convinced that our chronic headaches are the real problem. We're like Anna Karenina, abandoning her husband and her child, convinced that her real problem is that society will not accept her. We're very good at deceiving ourselves about what our real problem is. Romans 1 says that we are deathly good at it. And what's worse is we can find all sorts of people in this world who will tell you exactly what you want to hear when it comes to your delusions. You don't have to look far. You could Google it and get a whole host of affirmations about whatever it is that you've concluded on your own, apart from God's word, is your real problem. And they'll offer all sorts of salvations. Beloved, let me tell you, they're not salvation. Hear the plain light of God's word. Your sin is your biggest problem. As difficult as your life might be, as miserable as you may be, your problem is a surprisingly simple one. God made you to love and obey him, and you don't. <laughs> Therein consists all of your problems. That's what God's word says. Imagine a child who not only refuses to obey his parents, but ignores their existence altogether. It's repugnant, even to the light of nature. <laughs> Imagine a husband or a wife who not only ignores the duties of love that they have to their spouse, but consistently brings illicit lovers into the home. It's repugnant. Even the light of nature tells us that. And yet when scripture tells us that this is the very state of man in his sin, we protest. Do we not? We have a whole host of excuses of why that's just not the case. God isn't good, so I don't have to obey him. God hasn't made it plain, so I don't have to obey him. 
Well, if he would just speak. You mean like in raising someone from the dead? Like, like having it as one of the most accurately recorded events in human history? You mean like, like that? Like speak like that? He has. All else is delusion, beloved. Your host of excuses, stories you tell yourself to confirm that you can continue to pursue your own ruin, thinking that it is your life. It is a lie, and you have bought it. Let the light of God's word bring you life. And it starts with a hard word. You're a sinner, and that's your problem. But if that lands... Look at the light that opens because we find here God forgiving sinners, beloved, Free, freely, like with joy. You can almost hear the excitement in the Lord's voice here. The hard word must precede the good word, beloved. The starting point of salvation is acknowledgement of sin. The dark heart of the matter precedes the beautiful light of the gospel. So I say, in the name of the maker of heaven and earth, I do not stand here on my own authority. I stand here in the name of the true king. The one to whom every knee will bow, either now in the reign of grace or subjected and subdued in the reign of glory, I say to you, your problem is sin. Repent and believe and receive the forgiveness, the pardon that he freely gives. You have been told. You are without excuse now. The bad news is that we're sinners deserving God's wrath. The good news is Jesus Christ comes to save sinners. Beloved, it couldn't be plainer. Repent, believe, live. And for those who have, those who have been welcomed into the household of God, I think there's still a good lesson for us to learn just in this simple exchange of Jesus telling us what we really need. Calvin invites us to shape our prayers in the light of this. How much time and energy do we expend praying for the Lord to change our circumstances? Now certainly there's a place for that, beloved. But in the light of what we really need, doesn't that give us an indication of how we ought to pray? The Lord hasn't promised to change our circumstances. He has promised to deal with sin. He's promised to grant that cleansing of conscience that we need because the truth is every set of adverse circumstances is a new occasion for us to exercise our sinful hearts, beloved. Sullying our consciences. The promise isn't I'm going to give you the perfect set of circumstances. The promise is I'm going to pardon your sin and I'm going to overcome those circumstances to subdue sin and bring life in your heart. Do we pray in the light of this? 
this plain prioritization structure, this plain statement of what God has promised to do and what he hasn't promised to do, what he still does sometimes in his goodness. Spoiler alert, he tells the man he can walk. I guess it's not a spoiler. I read the passage already. (laughs) Sometimes he does just in sheer goodness arrange circumstances in a more advantageous way, but he has not promised to do that. He has promised to forgive and defeat sin. Do we pray in the light of that, beloved? I hope that you do. Because the text teaches us that as plain as it is that this is our basic need, the intensity of objections is real. And so we can consider next, you object. And so do they. Look, starting in verse 3, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? If this is man's most basic need, if this sits near the heart of the power of God and the wonder of the kingdom, we ought to expect this to be fiercely contested ground. Does that make sense? We ought to expect that this is going to be an area shrouded in objections. One of the ways to confuse things is just by getting loud. So they raise their vehement objection here. Like the enemy of your lives is invested in destroying you. And he will confuse this however he can. And here he uses religious leaders to confuse the matter. This man is blaspheming. Here it's the appearance of concern for God's glory. That's striking. Isn't that striking? The devil uses the supposed zeal for God's holiness to keep people enmeshed in their sins. They they object to the forgiveness that Jesus grants based on the assumption that they care very much about God's holiness. That's what the charge of blasphemy is. You can't do that. Only God can do that. We're, We're protecting God's holiness. And what's most shocking is that Jesus doesn't meet them at a half-truth. He's like, you've got God's holiness right. You do have a right that this is unique to God. But, but let me explain further. He says, you're evil. <laughs> you're, you're evil. You're evil. This is your evil heart. No, I know it's dressed up like concern, like zeal for God's holiness. Let me tell you plainly, you're evil. Okay, before I go on to objections, that's sobering, isn't it, as a religious community? Now, we've already met this idea that we can use pious practice to advance our own sin. But this one's particularly jarring. Mm that our own sin can wear the mask of zeal for God's holiness and destroy other people. That's sobering, beloved. Grapple with that. That's the heart of the flesh. 
But he says it right there. You're evil. That's evil. But more directly concerning us is the fact of the objection. And this is not an objection that's unique to the first century religious leaders who are interacting with Jesus in Capernaum. This is an objection of every other religion. Jesus can't forgive sin. Right? Isn't that at the heart? I mean, they're objecting to other things. Like, we don't need forgiveness. Certainly, the human plight is disagreed on by all of the world religions. But one of them is, Jesus can't forgive sins, which has entailed within it, you don't need your sins forgiven. Their rejection is the rejection of all false religion. And Jesus calls it what it is. It's evil. It's a lie from the devil who is interested in keeping you in your sin. Because that's how you die. And that's his perverse glee. So the first objection is one to the person and the work of Christ. And that is an objection found high and low near and far and he's about to show them that no i can i can i can you should know that already because i've been here a while i've been doing this stuff for a while and it's not that you're concerned with god's glory it's that you don't like god's mercy because you don't think you need it that's going to become real plain in the next episode it's amazing how Zeal for God's holiness is oftentimes attended by a mercilessness, almost a contempt for mercy. Anybody found that? No? That's just me? But this enters into an area of wrestling with what sorts of objections are raised. What sorts of objections are raised? What sorts of objection do you raise? What sorts of objection are you raising right now, likely? God says, you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. I'm the true and living God. I made you for myself. You haven't done anything I've called you to do. In fact, you've thrown in with darkness itself. Your whole life evidences that. I'm telling you this to bring you back to myself. Even now, you're raising objections. Come, let us reason together. Objection one, I don't need forgiveness. Not really. I'm really not that bad. God says the opposite. God says you're the worst. As a sinner, you are the worst. We've already heard the utterly unobjectionable call of God's law. Look, I want you to love me, your maker, the one who is light, in whom there is no shadow or variation due to change, the one in whom there is no deceit, the one whom, in whom there is no ill. You love me, you worship me, and just to prove to you how good I am, love one another. And we're like, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> we'll take it from here. We'll figure it out. He's like, no, no, you can't figure I made you for myself. There's no figuring it out. Like, this is it. This is the only thing that's possible. You're a creature. You're going to die. You need to breathe. You need to eat. You need water. You need shelter. You're very weak. You're very dependent. The very existence that you have attests your dependence. You're dependent upon me. 
There's no figuring it out apart from me. Here, listen to me. I made you for myself. You don't like me. You've been deceived. You've deceived yourself with this world's pleasures. You're a sinner, and God's judgment is coming. This is the plain testimony of God's word. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have exchanged the truth of the glory of God for a lie and worship the creation and not the creator. The psalmist says, if you should mark sins, O Lord, who would stand? It's a rhetorical question. No one. Not one of you. Not one of you. Solomon says, no one can say I am without sin. That's an absolute statement. The question isn't, am I a sinner? The question is, who has it right, you or God? Again, I'm not speaking on my own authority. The testimony from the beginning of Scripture is God made us to love and obey him, to love one another, and we have not, not even close, really. (laughs) And quite frankly, you don't need to look very far to see that confirmed. You don't even look past your own homes to see that's the case. Greed, anger, lust, if not openly manifest, certainly plainly filling secret thoughts and dark rooms when you think nobody can see you. To the objection, I do not need forgiveness, I have not sinned, Scripture says you're deceiving yourself at a dangerous level. Perhaps you're on the other end of the spectrum when it comes to objections. Namely, if God only knew how bad my sin was, he would never forgive me. If other people knew what was in my past, I would be cast out. Here, the strange and wonderful news is only God does know how bad your sin is. In fact, he knows it plainer than you do. It's plain to him because your heart is open before him. No wonder the gospel is knowing this sin in its full heinousness. He sent forth his son even still. That's an otherworldly love, beloved. The father sending the son, the son willingly coming to bear the full weight of sin. Not in ignorance, but in true knowledge, as he's the only one bearing that full weight. Make no mistake, the son didn't come to die for acceptable sin, right? We think that all the time. And it's like, well, it's, there's a certain threshold of sin that Christ came to die for, but beyond that, poof, those guys are in real trouble. There's no such thing as acceptable sin. There's no such thing as mild sin. That even a single violation of God's law is worthy of the full weight of God's wrath. Christ went to the cross to showcase the true reality of sin and to bring full and true forgiveness for sin, beloved. Paul says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Read Paul's life. There was no slight amount of blood on his hands. 
And he did that against knowledge. He was worse than the pagans because he had knowledge. There is no sin so great that Christ's precious blood cannot cover and cleanse it. So again, the question is not, am I a great sinner? You are. The question is, is Christ mighty to save? He is. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you, as one ancient divine was wont to put it. And perhaps you say, I need forgiveness, maybe, but that's not really what I need. Now, in a sense, we've already covered this, beloved. Why won't you listen? What are you bringing up objections for that I've already talked about? You say, Pastor Michael, you're the one writing the sermon. Don't talk back to me. I'm the pastor. <laughs> perhaps the objection is I need forgiveness at some point, but what I need more than that is better circumstances because it's these circumstances that are keep causing me to sin. Okay. Your circumstances, as we've said before, but I'm going to keep saying it because we keep making this confusion. Your circumstances don't create sin. They reveal your sin, beloved. Hard circumstances don't do anything other than show you who you are. Truth? Truth. Jesus did not have easy circumstances. He had a hard life everywhere around him. Misery. Himself, no place to lay his head. Himself, nailed to a cross. Friends abandoned him. Deranged cruelty on display in its fullness against him. And he knew no sin. Circumstances aren't your problem. Sin is your problem, beloved. And he has come to deal with that. Which brings up the final objection, which is a uniquely Christian objection most of the time. I have encountered in some other bizarre circles. I've passed beyond the need for forgiveness. I needed forgiveness at the beginning of my Christian life, but not anymore. Now, now I'm justified, so I don't, I don't need to worry about this anymore. Beloved, we pray regularly, forgive us our sins. That's how Matthew has instructed us to pray. How often do you need forgiveness? How often do you need bread, beloved? Because those are the links that he gives us. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debts. You don't pass beyond the need for forgiveness. And if you think that you do, mark the enemy's work there because it means you think you can deal with God on a basis that is not his grace and mercy extended unto you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're there, I guarantee you're rising up in self-righteousness against others. I guarantee it. Because you think they need something you don't. But you do need it. You never interact with God on a basis other than pure grace and mercy, beloved. Because even the best of your evangelical obedience needs to be cleansed by the blood shed in free mercy and grace. Mark, if the enemy hasn't deceived you there, 
rise up against others in self-righteousness, return to the daily prayer. Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. So what's your objection? You tell me. There's just a couple. I don't know the specifics of your heart, but I'm sure it falls somewhere within this range. If it's something completely unaddressed, hey, let's talk about it. Let's reason together. Because the loveliness is that Christ is interested in forgiving sins. That's what he presses home in the face of the objection. He proves that he provides this. So last and briefly, he proves that we need forgiveness. This is how it closes. Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? What is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. This happened. It's recorded in all three Gospels. This happened. Like that level of eyewitness account is remarkable. That you have three ancient witnesses attested in no small number of ancient manuscripts that this actually happened. And it's important that it actually happened because he grounds his authority in the event itself. Or he at least uses the event itself to help our ridiculous hearts get our minds around the fact that he does have the authority to do this. What would it take for you to trust a physician? We're living in a day of deep suspicion, particularly towards the medical community. Not saying it's not granted or warranted, just let's just grant that. I'm asking, what would it take you to trust a physician? I'm guessing it would be some combination of kindness and competence which is really just a variation of goodness and power. These are the ideal conditions of trust, right? You are able to help, power, competence. You are willing to help, goodness, kindness. Mark the kindness and the competence that's set forth here. The kindness is quiet, but it's there. Kindness is often quiet. The friends bring him, lay him at the feet of Jesus. There's a large crowd assembled. Matthew and Luke tell, Mark and Luke tell us Jesus is teaching. We know that scribes are there. We know that crowds are there. We know that there are a lot of people there. Paralytic is laid at his feet, abruptly interrupting him. How do you do when you're abruptly interrupted? Would you say that you comport yourself in grace and dignity? I suspect that you do not, because I don't. <laughs> No, we get interrupted and we're like all sorts of frustrated and disoriented and this is like it's a two-year-old, like he didn't mean it. <laughs> Mark the king getting interrupted and in how he responds, grace, dignity, his bearings, he stops, gives the person his full attention, and then speaks kind words to him. Take heart. Child, child, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. As Christians, we often give the king a bad name simply because we're not that kind. <laughs> Unfortunately, 
This mild and gentle king is represented by people who are ornery and wild from time to time, and we don't always apologize for it. I trust you'll forgive me for making such a basic point that Christ requires kind, kindness. Just, just Somehow we think that true spirituality consists in something exotic. Kindness. So simple. That's what Paul says. It's almost like he's talking to a child. Be kind to one another. Like, literally, I've said that to my children. <laughs> Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So simple. So simple. So good. So beautiful. So actual. He calls us to this. And in calling us to this and empowering us in this, it's nothing more than reflecting what he has already done, beloved. Mark the kindness of the physician here. He doesn't lose it when he's interrupted by someone in need. With the full dignity of his noble bearing, he turns his majestic gaze upon this one and speaks kind words to him. But kindness only gets you so far if you're not mighty to save, and so it's not just that he's kind, it's that he's competent. First, he pierces the heart. He sees to the heart of things. That's the first evidence of his kindness. It says he sees their thoughts, which means what? He knows how it stands with your heart. Mark that. How can he say that man's real need is the invisible reality of sin? He can see the heart. It says he sees the thoughts of their heart and he knows that they're evil. This is a remarkable physician who has that sort of gaze. It's not just a detail that's thrown away. It's proof that he's competent, beloved. That his diagnosis is accurate because he sees as no one else does. Mark, if it's not difficult to peer into the heart of things. Your children come to you and you're like, I don't, what is going on in there? Somebody else comes to you, you're trying to figure, like, what is going on? And you look at your own heart and you're like, what is going on in here? Jesus Plain. It's as easy as chicka chicka boom boom to him. It's a very simple book about the ABCs that I read to my children. That's how easy your heart is to him. <laughs> it's that plain before him, and he says, This is your problem. But the competence doesn't end there. He ends by healing with a word. He's already pronounced pardon, he's given the greater gift. Can we agree on that? first thing this man received was the greatest gift man can receive. There's nothing higher than this because it means peace with God. It means your war with God is over. It means you're free from wrath. It means you're free from judgment. And not just that, it means you're established in life. Because to be forgiven is to be welcomed with the Father. It's not like you go into this neutral holding ground, like what's going to happen next? To be forgiven is to be welcomed at the table of peace. It means to be a child. It means to be an heir. It means to possess eternal life because this is what it means to be near to God in peace, beloved. He's already received the best gift imaginable. 
to prove that, Jesus puts a lesser gift at their disposal. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Get up and walk. And he does. He gets up and he walks. Those crowds saw it. Those scribes saw it. And guess what, beloved? You just saw it. Just because it happened then doesn't mean it didn't happen. The fact that it happened proves the same thing he intended it to prove, namely that he has authority to forgive sins. And what's more is it doesn't just rest upon him telling the man to get up and walk. It rests on something more plain still, namely the Lord Jesus Christ getting up from death. That proved his authority. It vindicated all of his words. And now you've seen it, beloved. And so if you've seen it by virtue of the report, even now that says, yes, Jesus told this man to get up and he got up. Yes, on the third day, Jesus got up. And I now, as a servant in his name, declare to you that these things happen and they prove this, that there is forgiveness to be had, not partial forgiveness, not temporary forgiveness, but full and free and perfect forgiveness to be had. And that's good news for you if you acknowledge that you're a sinner. So be encouraged. If he's shown you the truth of your sin, I trust he's showing you the truth of his son right now. Namely, that he has authority to forgive sins, beloved. And this continues to go forth. But it also means he has the authority to tell you that you need the forgiveness of sin. The fact that he said, get up and walk, proves that he is like no one else who has ever lived the fact that he took his own life up on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father proves that there is no one like him and that he is exactly who he said he was, the true Son of God, come to save sinners. His kindness is beyond praising. His power is beyond praising. And he calls you to trust him. Do you believe? I pray that you do. Join me in prayer. Press your word home upon our hearts, Lord, as only you can. You know what we are up against. Hearts deceived by sin and up against a monster who would see us destroyed. But the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than our hearts. He's greater than that monster. So press these things home. Magnify your name. Save us, O oh Lord. Save us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.